This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Purdue University's Dr. Jason Lusk. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta, products and services designed to help a farmer's return on investment. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Dr. Jason Lusk, next. Commodity prices remain under pressure. That's why now, more than ever, farmers are focused on their return on investment. More and more, they depend on Syngenta products and services designed to increase their ROI. See the Syngenta seed innovations made for ROI. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Today there's much debate about food, where it comes from, how it's produced, what labels are on products, and who gets food assistance. Dr. Jason Lusk serves as Distinguished Professor and Head of Agriculture Economics at Purdue University. With regard to upcoming biotech disclosure regulations, Lusk says it's a completely new frontier. What actually is the information being conveyed here? Um, you know, it's not really telling you anything about the safety of the product. It's not telling you anything about environmental impact. Uh, this is different than, say, nutritional labeling, where, where we, we think there are links between the number of calories we consume and health outcomes. It's sort of, sort of that, that kind of argument was one that was difficult to understand what the motivation was. In terms of the way the policy debate played out, and, the, and we got this label that, that perhaps could be implemented through a QR code, it seems like really neither the, the pro-labeling or the anti-labeling sides were very happy with that. The anti-labeling didn't want any labeling. Um, uh, maybe in some ways the fact that nobody was happy means that it was a good compromise. <laughs> um, one of the potential upsides, I guess, is that, is that with some of these QR codes, it, it provides at least an opportunity for what I would perceive to be more meaningful information to be conveyed uh, if people happen to scan those products. We've done some research on these topics, looking at how people may respond to these QR codes. By and large, it looks like people just will ignore it, particularly compared to if a text disclosure was there. If a text disclosure is there, you know, the people seem to be a little less willing to pick up those products. The other interesting thing is what are the other claims that are on those products? Uh, you, you have the non-GMO label with the butterfly on it or, or organic type labels. I think one of the interesting things we've found is that there's been debate even within the organic community about the emergence of this non-GMO label. That while some groups were initially backing that, I think what they found is that oh, well, if if, if we could just if food, food manufacturers can just add this non-GMO verified label, they can capture a lot of the premium that we could have gotten with the organic. And so these these two labels are kind of substitutes in the minds of the consumer, uh, and yet one of them is much less expensive out on the product, because as the organic industry likes to say, organic is non-GMO and more, and, and so it's much more costly, much more onerous process to get. Uh, so it's, it'll be interesting to see how all this shakes out once that label hits the, hits the marketplace. And um, it's probably a little too early to know exactly what's going to happen. Isn't it interesting that the consumer that you surveyed suggested they would rather let the expert decide, yet when you look at the field of agriculture today and the new sciences that are being made available to farmers for them to produce to be more sustainable, there's pushback from some consumer groups on that to the point of ballot initiatives and even litigation to stop farmers from using particular sciences. Right. I think it is important to distinguish between you know, sort of the average food consumer and some advocacy organizations. You know, I think the squeaky will gets the attention, and, and so when you have some advocacy organizations that are really loud and vocal, um, they don't necessarily speak on behalf of, of all food consumers, and I think that's something important to 
keep in mind there's a large middle gray area there of folks that are, are persuadable and, and while they they might lean slightly in one direction uh, don't have really strong opinions so, so for example in the biotechnology front you know we, we find on surveys if you really mention almost any positive reason why somebody might have used a GMO then you can turn on average people from being slightly negative to slightly positive again it's another sign that people don't know a lot about this but also suggests we need to you know not mistake uh, the vocal minority sometimes for, for what's driving that. Now, that being said, where a lot of the action has happened in the marketplace, at least, has been in the interaction between retailers and, and uh, restaurants and food manufacturers and those advocacy organizations. And, you know, when you can get a retailer to adopt a pledge to not use a certain production practice, for example, that Im- that Im- has a big impact, much bigger impact than than you know, individual consumers. And so it's a smart a smart strategy for advocacy organizations to try to pursue that. And they've been successful. One of the reasons they've been successful is these uh, retailers and manufacturers have brand names that they've invested billions of dollars in to maintain, and they don't want to tarnish the reputation of that brand name. They don't want to be protested or look like they're not being, uh, you know, socially responsible, if you will. And so I think the lesson there for folks within agriculture is they, they need to be a part of those discussions and debates that uh, what are the terms uh, of this sustainability initiative. And and I think what we may see in some cases, and, and when some of our consumer research suggests this, that, that yeah, there, there are segments of consumers, niche markets, if you will, of, of consumers who are really willing to pay a lot um, for alternative agricultural production practices but when you look at the broader swath of consumers um, they're willing to pay a little but not that much and so I think that's really the challenge is that for retailers is what they see is oh there's this big big uh, you know a lot of profit we can make here and, and so I think the, da- the the sort of danger on their side is adopting this on a larger scale and what they may uh, come to find out is that that large willingness to pay is not broadly shared among most most of their their population and so what you may see are some reversals uh, in some cases of, of some of these pledges well you find this in two different areas number one those who have adopted a cage-free aspect with regard to eggs and it was former secretary vilsack that brought the group together and said do you realize that there might not be enough cage-free eggs mm-hmm. if you all make a step in that particular direction mm-hmm. yeah if, if we're going to meet the pledges that have been made by uh, all the retailers we're going to have to convert 75 percent of the laying flock uh, before 2025. So that's a that's an enormous change that will happen over, over that time if it goes forward. And I've got some research that I've done on this topic that's, that hasn't quite been released yet, so I, I can't convey all those results. But I think there's reason for some of those retailers to maybe take a second look at those policies. And if you look at a lot of their announcements when they came out, there was some small fine print at the bottom that says, well, you know, if the demand is there. So let's think then just a little bit about food policy and the nature of the country. It, it seems we're more partisan in Washington than we've ever been, and so many issues that we face are certainly polar. Just from a broad stroke perspective, can we look at political persuasions and attitudes about food and food policy? Do those metrics line up? Yes. Um, I think it's one thing that's a little disconcerting is that you know some of these issues surrounding food and agricultural technology, it's better if they're not politicized uh, because once they get politicized, then the, the trouble is in that we get in our camps and our tribes and it makes it harder for those to be broadly acceptable. So I, if I had my druthers, I'd prefer they weren't politicized. And by and large, they haven't been. I mean, if you look at issues like, again, biotechnology, uh, if you look at just simple questions like, do you think GMOs are safe to eat? There actually aren't really large partisan divides there. 
where you do see the partisan divides is on the willingness of people to regulate those, and, you can, and, then, and then, then you'll see it. So, for example, in, in the case of, again, mandatory labeling for GMOs, that's one where sort of more left-leaning and be more likely to say, yeah, I, I, I sort of support that. Um, so there, there, there are political correlations with some of these. Uh, another example might be meat consumption, that we, we find that meat demand, probably not that surprising to most of your listeners, is much higher among more conservative members of the population. So there's that, that gap there related to things people consume. But the interesting thing we've been observing over time is that that gap has been widening. So the sort of conservative liberal gap uh, in terms of how it explains meat demand has been growing over time, over the last five years at least. So that suggests perhaps that even things like you know whether you eat meat or not is becoming a politicized issue. Why is that? Well, uh, it's because issues like climate change that have been very politicized are also now being thrown into meat consumption issues and issues like animal welfare are being coupled with those. So, um, you know, I think that's that's really interesting. There are some issues that maybe have a little more bipartisan support, some issues related to, say, SNAP and some other issues. Actually, we asked questions about... I did a bunch of studies five or six years ago on public perceptions about farm subsidies. And interestingly, uh, and somewhat surprisingly to my more free market-oriented friends, and I happen to be one of those too, that, that actually farm subsidies share fairly broad support among both sides of the ideological spectrum. When we think about the, the consumption of meat, now we're looking at not baby boomers, but millennials, and then the transition to Generation Z. And this political influence is affecting the way that they spend money at the grocery store, maybe even beyond what their policy position might be. Well, if you, if you look at, for example, who says they're a vegetarian or vegan, uh, the, the three biggest drivers or ability to predict whether somebody's a vegetarian or vegan is younger females who tend to be left-leaning are, are much more likely to be vegetarian and vegan than, than other folks. So there certainly is an age dimension to this. The question is, how big is the effect, and will it persist as these folks grow older? Will they become like the 40- and 50-year-olds that now exist, or will they keep the preferences they had in their youth? Uh, that's a little harder to know, but I, I think, um, you know, we, we study meat demand, and, and, you know, demand right now looks fairly strong for meat, uh, if anything, probably slightly growing a little bit at the moment. But there are reasons to suggest there's not maybe a bit of a soft underbelly there, and it's related to the issues that you just mentioned, that consumers that are younger tend to be a little more worried about things like animal welfare and the environment, which have detrimental correlations to meat consumption. The other thing, of course, is just on the technology side, that there could be a lot of competition coming from these kind of lab uh, based meat alternatives that could have really disruptive impacts on the uh, agricultural sector. And this is not something that's coming. This is something that's already here. Lab, you can you can buy those today. You're right. I think there's probably a tendency of folks to still think about this a little bit as sort of pie in the sky issue. But no, uh, certainly some of the plant based alternatives uh, are in the marketplace. The Impossible Burger, for example, is in a restaurant a couple of weeks ago, and there it was on the menu. You know, there's an interesting thing about some of these technologies that that particular burger. My understanding is that it's produced by genetically engineered yeast. It's a fermentation process it's, that's producing animal-like proteins. And I've tasted it. It tastes pretty good. It tastes a lot closer to a conventional beef burger than anything else I've ever tasted. So I think on the taste and flavor side, you know, there's there's reason for caution there. The interesting thing is on the, that back to this technology acceptance thing. There's a little bit of a irony here that you you, you know if I if you were to ask me who's the person that's most uh, concerned about meat production and then who's the person that's most concerned about GMOs, those would be roughly the same people. Of course, there's a lot of overlap and distribution there. 
so who's going to who's this product going to appeal to <laughs> and um is the concern for gmos you know which which concern is greater uh and which one is going to win out in that tussle in the end uh, a little hard to know one of the bigger challenges that may come if there is a 2018 farm bill is that over nutrition it's already 80 percent of the spending from the department of agriculture but the administration and others are talking about welfare reform and potential change in the snap program what does your polling suggest about food assistance from government toward individuals? Supportive, or is there, or do they support a need for change? Yeah. So I'll talk about the polling here, and hopefully then we'll come come back to that actual economics <laughs> too. But if we just ask people what they think, SNAP, colloquially referred to as uh, food stamps, uh, you know, the general public is fairly supportive of these programs. In fact, during the last farm bill debate, when there were some big cuts being proposed to those those programs. We asked people whether they supported or opposed those cuts, and most people were opposed to those cuts. And that was true across both sides of the aisle, which I was a little surprised about. Now, at the same time, what you see is also fairly wide bipartisan support for restrictions on that program, whether it's work requirements or calls to restrict certain kinds of, you know, quote-unquote junk food being purchased from those. Those those tend to poll fairly well in terms of, of public support. Now, there's I think there's maybe economic reasons we might want to be cautious about pursuing some of those policies, but in terms of public support, they seem to be fairly popular. Thinking about SNAP reform, are there particular areas that you would expect to surface as questions during debate now? Well, certainly. I mean, I think we've already seen some trickle up to the surface. Um, I think in the latest president's budget, there was this idea floated about these food boxes, the, the, the blue aprons, if you will, for the USDA. So that that sort of entered the fray. I, I don't. It's a little unclear how serious that is. Most of the commentary I've seen on the subject seems to be quite negative on that front but certainly the size of that it, you know it is an entitlement program and and so what that means is if, if people sign up for it they get it as long as they meet the criteria so the, the way you reduce the spending is you have to you have to impose you have to change the requirements or you have to impose caps on them and one of them that also seems to be you know a subject of debate now are these work requirements um, and I, I think you know some of these potential restrictions on how SNAP can be used certainly seem to be a part of the debate. So I suspect, I don't know whether any of the, these will be implemented, but they certainly seem to be a part of the discussion right now. You know, one of the questions might also be about how the food industry is changing. Uh, you can go online and shop, and it is ready for you when you show up at the store. Or maybe it's delivered to you. The question then, are SNAP benefits going to be available for these conveniences? Right. Well, you can. I think some there's been some discussion of of whether SNAP participants can can use uh, Amazon uh, for their food purchases too. Uh, you know, my my own particular view on these matters is that why would we make it harder on people to buy food and and, and more conveniently, particularly people that might be holding down two or three jobs. You know, to the extent these programs are trying to help people on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. I don't know that we want to make it harder on them to, to meet some of those most basic needs. I think it's also important to think about some of the economics of of these policies that would impose restrictions. If you look at SNAP recipients, these recipients are typically, you know, over 75% of them are spending more on food than they receive in SNAP benefits. And so what that means, though, is that if you put a restriction on SNAP, people can get around those restrictions by just reshuffling what they're buying with SNAP dollars versus their other dollars. So if you say you can no longer buy you know, sodas, for example, well, all they have to do is just re-exchange where the soda is on the checkout line with a little divider, put, put the soda on one side and move another food over to the other and get around that restriction. So there, there's you know, just logical reasons to suggest those kinds of policies aren't going to have big uh, impacts, but yet they are pretty popular with people. 
One of the other questions that came in debate was, would SNAP recipients be able to shop at stores that might not have a particular array of fruits and vegetables on the shelves? Bigger issue for some than others because it's not feasible for some stores. This gets down to the debate about food deserts and lack of access to fresh fruits and vegetables, and it's sort of this catch-22. Are lower-income households not being offered fruits and vegetables because they don't want it, or is it they're not consuming them because they're not being offered? My reading of the evidence, and there's been several recent studies on this, it's mainly a preference issue that lower-income households prefer for a variety of reasons, sometimes products that maybe don't align with what some people would prefer in terms of nutritional content. And so it's probably, again, my reading of the evidence, it's probably not an issue of access or requirements for stores to offer things. It's on the demand side of what people want. And so really, this is not easy to do, and nobody has any silver bullet to solve this problem. But if you would like SNAP participants to eat healthier, the main way to probably do that is to make them not be SNAP recipients anymore, to have a higher income, because then they'll want different things. They'll have a future where they're anticipating that if I make investments in my health, then those are going to reap some rewards for me in the future. So, again, I don't think we have any silver bullets in how to think about rising incomes for folks. But if you look at the data, that's the thing that really is a main driver of healthier eating. Some of the biggest battles in Washington are over money, and certainly USDA funds will uh, continue to remain under scrutiny by both sides of the political aisle. We did receive not long ago another president's budget, which, by the way, did call for another cup in farm spending and certainly toward uh, the crop insurance program. But it's been mentioned more than not that other countries are outspending the U.S. now on research. And in your particular area of vocation and there with Purdue University, it's also coming down to spending in economic research. That's right. And the latest president's budget proposed um, um, you know, 50, 60 percent cut in, in the USDA Economic Research Service. So this is an agency within the USDA that, that does exactly what it says, economic research. So if you've ever, for example, heard statistics on the farmer's share of the retail dollar or per capita consumption of beef or pork or chicken, uh, ERS is the agency that creates those statistics. They're, they're the same ones that create the data on what's happening to farm sizes over time and what are the distributions of different kind of farm sizes and how we think about categorizing them. That's, that's the USDA ERS, and they, they fund research that gets done at Purdue University and uh, they employ some of our graduates so this you know even in my own small discipline these things really matter you know aside from my own little area of of economics agricultural research in general is really an investment that seems to pay if you look at the economic research on this topic uh, ironically some of it done by the economic research service you know some of the most conservative estimates suggest that you know it's about a 22 to 1 payoff so for every dollar we spend on ag research we get at least 22 dollars in benefits i would say that's on the lower end of a lot of the estimates that are out there and so the the benefits to public spending on ag research are there and i just saw a statistic that if you look at how other countries are investing in ag research and technologies that they're really starting to outpace us in fact china uh, surpassed us and has continued to increase their spending on food and ag research spending more than we are now in real terms in the u.s we're actually spending spending less uh, in inflation adjusted terms on ag, ag research so these have real consequences we may not see them today because the returns are often longer term in nature. You're not going to develop a new crop variety overnight. Uh, but if we don't do it today, it means that 10, 20 years down the road when we need a, need a new drought-tolerant variety or disease-resistant variety, it's not going to be there because we didn't put the dollars into it today. 
how much we spend on various public activities and do we want to cut certain programs? I mean, that's sort of a, that's a, a public debate to be had and, and how big do we want our government to be? But I think it, it, at a minimum, we'd want people to understand the trade-offs that are there. What are you giving up uh, if we're not going to spend in certain areas? When we have these discussions about food and certainly about agriculture, I can't help but just take a step back. If you're in the trenches, you constantly see the battles of regulatory, of legislation, and of the rest. But if you take a step back, you realize how blessed we are to be in a country that has a choice, that you have a supermarket that has all of these different label options, and that we can have a debate about how we produce food as opposed to whether there's any food there or not. You've dedicated yourself to helping this industry, to studying consumers and of agriculture, and we're grateful for the opportunity to have had the chance to talk over the past several minutes here on Open Mic. In tradition, it is Open Mic, and Doc, you have the last word. All right, great. Yeah, I think, you know, there is this narrative that's in a lot of popular books and writings about food and ag that somehow our food system is broken. But really, I think if you look at the objective evidence on our food system, we've really never had a better food system really at any time in in history. We have more food that's more affordable, that's more nutritious, more available, um, that uses fewer resources on at least per unit of output basis than really at any time in our history. Uh, we have some real challenges out there. There's, there's no doubt about that. We have challenges on the human health side and on the environment side. Um, but the question is, how are we going to address those challenges? And, and I think what, what I've argued is that we want, we want the ability to use innovation and science and technology to help us address those problems, too. Uh, and um, it, it sounds nice and it feels good to sometimes think, well, well we could get rid of some of those problems if we went back to a, an earlier, lower productivity form of agriculture, but I'm, I just don't think those are going to have big impacts on the big problems we have. We'll need that science. We'll need that innovation. We want all the tools in our tool chest to be able to address them. Our thanks to Purdue University's Dr. Jason Lusk, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta, products and services designed to help a farmer's return on investment. Syngenta. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.